Acts 13. Okay, Acts is pretty easy to find, so go ahead and stand with me. We'll get right to it. We're doing vignettes or uh, thoughts from the past Sunday and just teasing out some things that uh, maybe I have not had, I couldn't get to completely in the message on Sunday, but it, to me, merit uh, some additional time. And tonight's, I think, a shorter thought, but I think it's an interesting thought. And so we're going to be looking primarily in verse 12 tonight. But I want to start, um, oh, let's start our story Oh, verse 7 of chapter 13. Acts 13, verse 7. Which was with the deputy of the country, Sergius Paulus, a prudent man who called for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the sorcerer, and in the Greek that word means magi, uh, for so is his name by interpretation, withstood them. So this guy named Sergius Paulus wanted to hear uh, Paul and Barnabas, but this administrative assistant uh, to Sergius Paulus didn't like that. And so seeking to turn away the deputy or the governor, which is Sergius Paulus from the faith. Well, then Saul, who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost. So what he's about to say and do is at the direction of God. Set his eyes on him, this Elymas, and said, O full of all subtlety and all mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thee, and thou shalt be blind, not seeing the sun for a season. And immediately there fell on him a mist and a darkness, and he went about seeking some to lead him by the hand. So Paul said he'd be blind, and he became blind. Then the deputy, Sergius Paulus, when he saw what was done, and this is what we're looking at tonight, when he saw, he believed, being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. And, and I, I find that last part of that verse fascinating because the word doctrine is just not here associated with the teaching, but with something that he saw. And so tonight, the thought is, is when he saw, he believed. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the night. And Lord, for this text, I, I pray, Lord, as we examine it a little more closely this evening, Lord, that we would, Lord, find application. And I think there is a real application and appropriation of your word, Lord, in this text tonight that, that we can make. And I pray you'd help us with that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for standing. In this story of Paul and Barnabas, as we learned this past Sunday, they are now officially engaged in their very first missionary journey that began in Antioch, went to the port of Seleucia. They're traveling to this island of Cyprus, 90 miles long by 10 miles wide. This is the hometown of Barnabas. Um, it was the closest large landmass, you know, really outside of the area of Turkey or um, the Antioch where these men were at currently. It had a large Jewish population, also very large, and maybe larger, of course, uh, pagan or Greek population. And so these men are sent by ship to this place, and, and they land and they minister for their, uh, we don't know how many days, but, but, but they were there for many days. They traveled from one side of the island to the other. The end point was in a city called Paphos. And Paphos is interesting because I think this was a real target of Paul and Barnabas. This was the, if you will, the capital city of Cyprus. This was the Roman seat of authority and government here. This is where the man Sergius Paulus, who was governor 
um, of this region was magistrate. So this man, Sergius Paulus, um, was a, um, we think probably a Greek. It's fascinating. He was raised with Herod or an association with Herod. Uh, but he is really the leader of this area. And um, he is calling for Paul and Barnabas to come and speak to him. Again, we don't know how long they were on the island or how long it took to get there. We, we just know that the teachings of Paul and Barnabas had reached the ears of Sergius Paulus somehow. And, of course, news there spread like it does here. And in verses, uh, I think verse number seven, it says that he wanted to hear him, uh, Paul. And so he sent for him. Uh, but the story has a rub that we discussed Sunday. Uh, there's this man who was named Bar-Jesus, also Elymas, um, who was uh, an advisor to the governor, who was an advisor, you know, to this Roman official. And he liked his position. He was a magi. The text calls him a sorcerer. In those terms would have been interchangeable in those days. And he was a man who was educated. He was well-versed in astronomy. Um, he would probably have made claims that he could interpret dreams and maybe he would have some capacity to do so. And these men typically served Roman authorities. And really, in the ancient world, Magi served many leaders as, as guides. No doubt he liked his position as chief guide to this magistrate. And I'm sure he felt threatened that if Sergius Paulus would have been saved, his dependence on him would be diminished. And so he didn't want that. No one ever wants their office, you know, devalued. So, what happens to the text is this man who is really acting because of his decisions as an agent of Satan standing in the way of the gospel reaching Sergius Paulus. We don't know how that happened. We just know that Paul and Barnabas were speaking to him. This man was probably saying things to diminish their words or maybe in some way even keeping uh, Paul and Barnabas away. Um, and, and, and so, you know, Paul sees this and is unhappy. And so the Bible says he, Paul, being full of the Holy Ghost and led by the Spirit, uh, he pronounces this, if you will, a curse, this negative miracle on this guy, the same way that Peter would have done on Ananias and Sapphira, and he goes blind. Okay, now while this is happening, none of this activity between Paul and Barnabas and Elymas, this sorcerer being cursed, none of this is being lost on Sergius Paulus. He's watching this. So, in some way, I'm sure he's already heard the words of the gospel. He's, he's heard these men speak. No doubt he's heard of their words. That's why he inquired for them to come. My opinion is he's probably heard some words from them already. The, the gospel may have been preached to him. And so, now he's watching, and this could have occurred in the same room. You know, Paul kind of in, in righteous indignation rise up and, and pronounce this. And then all of a sudden, this man goes blind. Well, the outworking of that is in verse 12, when the Bible says, when he, speaking of Sergius Paulus, saw, the next idea is he believed. And so he saw and he believed. And kind of interlinking those is this word astonished. Uh, it says he was astonished at what he saw. Now, the word astonished in the Greek is interesting. It, it means to fear. And to be and to marvel at. And so maybe a, a way of thinking of this is what he saw um, caught his attention in, 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 a, in a big way. Um, it created respect. That, that may be a way of, of looking at this word. It wasn't like terrified astonishment, but it was like, man, what he's saying is really different. And it commanded his respect. And, and so he began to really marvel at what he was seeing. 
And so the idea here is the combined effect, this is what I'm taking away from this, the combined effect of what Sergius Paulus had heard, because we know he heard something, because he sent for Paul and Barnabas, and I think he heard them personally, the combined effect of what he heard and what he saw initiated faith in this man. The Bible says he believed, and, and, and that word believed there is the same word that's used elsewhere in the New Testament for faith in. And so here's this man watching Paul pronounce this judgment, and it happened. He had heard his words of the gospel, how Jesus was the Christ. He had to have that in order to be saved. We know that. You can't be saved without that knowledge. And so this combination of what he saw and heard initiated faith in this man, who the Bible calls prudent. He had some wisdom about him, and he was saved. It was the combination of these two things that caught my attention. And together in this verse, it is implied that what he saw and heard was something that astonished him. What astonished him was this doctrine, this doctrine. And so the question is, is you know, how do you, what, what is the doctrine here? What, what did he see? Well, here doctrine, I know when we think about doctrine, we think about maybe just teaching or information. But doctrine is used in this text in connection with what this man both saw and heard. So I want to look at this word doctrine a little bit uh, this evening. When I use that word, it's not an unfamiliar word to us. We don't use it often, but it's something we all kind of grow up with and we know. And the easiest way to think about the word doctrine is maybe with the word truth. Uh, when we say we believe a certain set of doctrines, we are saying we believe a certain set of truths. Doctrines are um, the tenets of our faith. But they're more than that. You know, the tenets just aren't like maybe these five or six or 10 or 12 specific, you know, high level things we believe. But, you know, we, we believe in the doctrine of kindness. So we believe in the doctrine of giving. And there, there's lesser truths in teaching that Jesus taught, the Bible teaches, that we believe in. And, and those also would be um, doctrines. In, in the Greek, this word is didike. You can also, it's, I found out, you can pronounce it didike. Um, some people call it didache, but that's not how you pronounce it. It's didike or didike. And it, it does mean that. It means teaching. And, and, and so, um, in 2 Timothy, um, chapter, chapter 3, verse 7, we know that all Scripture it was given by inspiration of God, and the Bible said is valid, is useful, should be used for doctrine, for teaching. And so, that's what we do on our church services. I am taking the Word of God, and I am looking for doctrine, or I'm teaching the Scripture, and it is doctrine. It is teaching and truth from the Word of God that is to be applied for our lives. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 33, um, after Jesus was teaching, the Bible says almost the exact same words we see in Acts uh, chapter 12, that the people were astonished at his doctrine. And he just taught some things about the resurrection, and they had watched Christ, and they were astonished by what they saw and what they heard. But in the text here, as I'm implying, the word is bigger than just some words on paper. And it's even bigger than just truths that we believe in here and in here. Um, the text is clear to say that Sergius Paulus was astonished and he believed the doctrine that he also saw. And so, um, I would say, in definition, a doctrine is a defined set of beliefs that are held. 
Okay, everybody up here with me? A doctrine is a defined set of beliefs that are held. But that last word, held, has implication to it. Um, held means not just held in here, but it's held in the way I live. Does that make sense? In other words, I'm going to hold a truth. I, I just don't hold it in here. I hold it in, in my life. James makes this argument, which will be there in a moment, that real Christianity is more than just mental assent. Demons believe, but we believe and behave, right? So, are, are you all following me here? So, a doctrine is not just the truth that we hold, or just the truth that we believe, but it's the, the truth we hold in the way that we live. And that's what Sergius Paulus saw that astonished him. Hey, there's a truth this man claims, but it also has power in it. You with me? He's not just spouting something like Plato might. What Paul is saying has real power in his life. Of course, here it is quite astonishing power, but there's something here that, that, that commands my respect, that commands my admiration. It makes me wonder. I think a great way to think about the word doctrine is the way the military uses it. You may have heard that phrase, military doctrine. Um, military doctrine um, is an expression of beliefs. So when I would say that, you know, um, there's a military doctrine in Ukraine for America. There's a military doctrine in, in, in the Middle East if we were engaged in a conflict there. What that is is... Men have met together, leaders have met together, and they provide a framework of reference for decision-making in a time of crisis if war comes. In other words, there's policies and procedures that they lay out that, that guides their behavior in that crisis. You with me? So, military doctrine. Okay, if this happens um, in this place, well then, when that happens, here are the resource, resources at our disposal. And we'll, we'll use this Abrams tank and we'll use these aircraft. In other words, there's this principle of precepts. Here's what's allowable to use. And furthermore, here's how we'll use it. So there's principles and precepts and then behavior to follow. Okay. You guys with me on this? Yeah, it's just not we believe we should do this. It's here's the things that are available at our disposal, and we'll use it this way and only that way in those contexts. So it's a framework. It's an expression of things on paper. It guides what to do under specific circumstances. Um, it is belief plus behavior. It is truth and how to employ it. Well, that's what this is for us as well. We have doctrines we believe and we hold. We, we, we see them on paper, but they're supposed to be in our lives more than on paper. These truths are supposed to be lived out in our life. And that's what Sergius Paulus saw and caused him to believe. He heard something. He saw something. The combination of the two initiated faith in his heart. I think that's what's happening in the text. He heard a truth that was accompanied by power, um, I'm going to say authenticity, and he believed. I think it's fascinating uh, that Jesus called us to be salt and light. 
Light would be truth. Salt would be more practical. Uh, light would be who God is, and salt would be the way that that truth would be expressed in our lives. And when you wed, here's my contingency tonight, when we wed salt and light, when we wed words and wonder or truth and power and or conviction with compassion, with believing and doing something, that that is where there's a greater power released in the lives of people who are witnessing it, possibly to be saved or to believe. Let me say it this way. The combination of seeing and hearing is convincing. It is convincing. True Christian doctrine is belief that changes my behavior. Again, Matthew 5, 16, let your light, the truth that you have, so shine in the world that they see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So he doesn't say, hey, just have light. No, he says, you know, let your light, let the truths within you, let the beliefs that you have, let the doctrine, the teachings that I give you, let those truths express themselves, manifest themselves, shine in such a way that those truths lived out um, cause people to wonder, to be astonished. And then in response, believe and glorify your Father in heaven. This uh, weddedness of these thoughts is all throughout the Word of God. All too often, it is easy for Christians to allow orthodoxy to substitute for doctrine. Okay? Now, orthodoxy isn't, isn't a bad word. We, I would hope we're orthodox. Um, but when I say orthodoxy, I, I'm implying just more the idea of intellectual knowledge, truth. And all too often, you know, we know things orthodoxy, right things, and we might even believe those right things, but we don't necessarily always appropriate those things in a way that doctrine, the word doctrine implies. It's easy to believe something but not behave some way. We all know that, right? I mean, everyone, everyone knows it's right to give. Orthodoxy. True doctrine is giving. Everyone knows it's right to share the gospel, orthodoxy. Not everyone shares their faith or actually even passes out a track. Everyone knows orthodoxy. You're supposed to forgive. That you're supposed to love your enemies and pray for them. That's orthodoxy. But true doctrine lived out is the expression of this word. And this word says we are to forgive. Okay, and it's easy to make that substitute the Christian life. Well, I believe, I believe, I believe, but do you behave, behave, behave? And by not necessarily wetting those two things together, we have light, but we're maybe not letting it shine. We, we, our salt may not be salty enough, as Jesus said. I will tell you this, when we say we believe one way, but we act another way, that is confusing to unbelievers. Amen. See, this is why, and it's unfair in many ways, but this is why unbelievers often deride Christians. And they have a word for this. It's called hypocritical. 
right? And we're all aware of that. And again, it's unfairly used um, so many ways. But, you know, they, they, they decline our faith. They decline hearing us because in their mind they see people who make claims to be nice, to be kind, to have grace, these things, and yet live in maybe a hateful whatever way. Um, and again, that's not the point uh, of their being unfair. But they see this hypocrisy and they deride it. And I think that's to a degree that's fair. This is what Jesus condemned in the Pharisees. The Pharisees were incredibly orthodox. And they added things to the law, but they also kept it. You, you carefully read the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. They did things that you and I struggle doing. They did tithe. They were faithful. They attended church. They did their prayers. They were incredibly orthodox, but they were failing to live out the Word of God in other ways in their heart. They were omitting the weightier matters of law by being kind and gracious and loving and forgiving the things that Jesus talked about. And they too were confusing people um, the way hypocrisy does. In the book of James, James takes great issue with this hypocrisy, this duplicity, this orthodoxy without behavior. Uh, what we, the Bible is implying is true doctrine, which is belief and behavior. And so take your Bibles and turn to the book of James chapter 2 real quick. James chapter 2. And he speaks at some length to this. And so he's talking about the subject of faith. Again, faith, which be part of the doctrine, which is the belief. He says it needs to have wed to it the so shine, the light, um, the, the, rather the salt, the um, giving ourselves in the practical way. So in chapter 2, let's begin our reading, I think, in verse 14. He says, um, What doth the prophet, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works, can faith save him? And the question is, can that kind of faith, can an orthodoxy void of practice save a man? Is what he's asking. In other words, is that even genuine is the idea? Is, is, it, is, it, is it genuine? If a brother or sister be naked and or destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be you warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth the profit? Well, it certainly doesn't profit them, right? The sentiment is sweet, but it's not helpful. And we're supposed to so let our light shine. In other words, this is, a, this is an opportunity for genuine Christians to get involved in the lives of others in a real and tangible way. And the omission to do that, James has said, is a failure of faith. And so, verse 17, even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. And so, he's saying, genuine faith, true doctrine, believes and behaves. Yea, a man may say, thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works. He says, better, better with this, and I will show thee my faith by my works. In other words, I'm an apple tree. I'm an apple tree. I'm an apple tree. Well, the best way to prove that is to produce apples. I can say it all day long, but the best way to prove it to me is to make me an apple. And that's what he's suggesting that real, a real apple tree will do. will produce apples, and a real Christian will go help that man in need. A real Christian will be compassionate. A real Christian will give. A real, a real Christian will demonstrate faith in these kinds of ways. Uh, the verse I referenced earlier in verse 19, Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. Well, that's part of the equation. But the devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O man, that faith that works is dead? 
And he gives this example, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith, Abraham's belief, wrought with his works? And by works was faith made perfect or made genuine. I like this word, authentic. The apple tree proved itself by producing apples. That's what Abraham did. He said he had faith in God and he proved it by putting his son on the altar. And the scripture was fulfilled which saith, Abraham believed God. Well, Abraham just didn't say believe God intellectually. Abraham proved he loved God by putting his son on the altar and raising the knife. And that act, that doctrine, that truth of seeing and doing was imputed, granted unto him for righteousness. He was called the friend of God. You see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. And so the whole point is, is this. He's not arguing one iota that works saves anyone. That is not what he's saying. Works saves no one. The Bible is explicitly clear. Not of works, lest any man should boast. He's not saying that. He's saying this. Apple trees make apples. And that genuine Christian doctrine can be both heard and seen. Amen. Going back to what he's saying. In other words, I should be able to look, you should be able to look at my life hear what I'm saying, and then say, hey, to some degree, you know, pastor's trying to live that out. I believe in giving. We'll look at my bank account and see if I do. And I do. You know, well, he, he claims that these things are important to him, but does he do them? And that's what is making a difference in the lives of Sergius Paulus. You see, he sees a life that says something and then backs it up with the power to actually accomplish something. Um, take your Bibles and turn over a little further to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. And so Peter here is giving some instruction uh, to these hurting, scattered Christians in Asia Minor. And so what he's giving them is doctrine. He's giving them truth, teaching. And chapters 2 and 3 are very practical Christian teaching. You can go back and read it tonight if you want to. But, but chapters 2 and 3 are very, very practical uh, Christian teaching. And it's about how to respond to authority and, and how, to, how to be under authority. And he talks about the home and the workplace. But, but in verse 8 of chapter 3, he even gets more specific. Like he just starts drilling down on Christian doctrine, Christian truth and behavior. Here's what he says in verse 8. Finally, like the, you want to be a Christian? He says this. You want to act like a Christian rather? Be all of one mind, having compassion of one another. Love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous. Not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing, knowing that you're there unto called. Or this is right doctrine, that you should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil. In his lips they speak no guile. Or this is Christian doctrine. Your lips should not be a source of cursing or discouragement in people's lives. Verse 11, let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. And this is what Christians do. This is Christian doctrine. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and ears are open to the prayers, but the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? So here's another Christian doctrine. doctrine. Suffer um, even when it's unjust. But if you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, be not afraid of their terror, neither be ye troubled. And they says, do this, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. But here's the connection. Here's the Sergius Paulus connection. 
You say you believe, okay, then behave a certain way. And when you believe and you behave, when you actually have sanctified the Lord in your heart, this is what happens. But sanctify the Lord um, God in your heart and then be ready for people to be amazed, for people to see and hear and maybe move even to the place of curiosity and maybe beyond curiosity to some kind of belief themselves. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. What moves people to asking us about our faith? How you behave. Does that make sense? That's what they're going to ask us. Christians say all kinds of stuff. And I'm not against it. We make all kinds of claims. And, and the world's going to look at us and go, oh, you know, they're going, whatever. But then when we say things and then we do things, then, especially these kinds of things that were described in verses 8 through 12, right through 14, we expect to do these kinds of things that other people don't do. They're not often kind. They're not often pitiful. They're not often courteous. They don't often suffer unjustly. They just complain about every injustice in their life. But when people see us do that differently, they're going to go, huh, man, their, their belief seems to match their behavior, so I'm going to ask them about that. You know, it's, it's not this great big word of astonished, but it's the same idea. They're going to go together. See, there's a really simple thought here that visibility will always grant us viability. And that is true in every area of life. Visibility, what people see, grants us viability, credibility. Okay? What people see assists in their ability to grant us viability and or credibility. There are many times in the Bible when the gospel was preached, the truth was proclaimed, the Holy Spirit worked, and people were simply saved. God worked in a miraculous way through that preaching. That happens all the time. It happens then. It happens now. But there are other times in our witnessing. And this way it's often going to take place in your lives as a believer and a member of the church. When people may need some convincing, some persuasion, it is helpful. You are going to lend viability when you grant those people in your life visibility. In other words, when you live out, Nicodemus watched Jesus for a while, and he was persuaded in time, and he believed. For many today, uh, there is a lot of competing noise out there in this world. You know, TV, commercials, TikTok, social media, like all these people making all these claims. But people tend to gravitate and follow that which seems to be genuine, authentic, real, and works. Doesn't just claim to be a truth, but behind the truth is a functional reality. Something's actually working there. And people tend to find those things and believe those things. You know, um, I'm going to suggest this. This is real simple. When we live authentic, genuine, doctrine-filled lives, that gives and grants credibility to our claims in a way that hypocrisy never will or can. Is that fair? Amen. That when we 
when people can see and hear truth from us, not just hear it, but hear and see it. They hear me talk about the gospel and they watch me be kind and gracious and merciful and giving, sacrificial, willing to be a servant. That that can accomplish something sometimes that no amount of lack of compassion or hypocrisy ever can. That's what Sergius Paulus did. He saw truth and power and he was convinced. Granted, we may never be able to um, display the power that a Peter or a Paul did the same way, but I am going to submit to you tonight that there is power in authenticity. I'm going to suggest to you that there is power in being genuine. Now notice, I did not say perfect. No one's expecting us to be perfect. But I think it is fair for someone to look at us and expect authenticity and genuineness. Trying. Trying to care. Trying to be gracious. Trying to be these things. I do think that credibility and power comes in being consistent. When people see something, they more often will buy into it when we live that out. You can do this. I'm going to go really fast here. But if you were to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5. And uh, again, I'm going to rifle through this, but I want to make the point. Matthew chapter 5 is the first of three chapters called the Sermon on the Mount. We often call this the Christian Manifesto. This is the kind of behavior that Jesus expects of his followers. Okay? Let me say this. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are Christian doctrine. They're truth, but Jesus is pressing a point that they're not just truths that are adhered to in the head, but they are truths that are applied in the hand. And in, 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 in the heart. And, and, and so he, he presses this really hard. Now, remember, um, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world in verses 13 and 14. So he's, he's saying you're supposed to be both salt and light. So let your sign shine before men is what he says to us here in verse 16. So he's saying this, be truth, be light, and go shine. And so, here's where doctrine is fulfilled and truth is married to behavior. He says, go master your temper in verse 22. True doctrine doesn't understand just that a temper and anger is wrong. It works to master it. Verse 23, be reconciled to others. Don't just say you believe it. Be reconciled. Now, I'm paraphrasing. You can scan it as I'm saying it. You get the idea. Real Christians, they reconcile with people. Verse 28, guard your eyes and your heart. Real Christians, authentic Christians say they believe that things are wrong and immoral and they avert their eyes. They don't look at certain things. They guard both their eyes and their heart. Verse 32, be committed in your marriage. Christians say it's a big deal, but God says protect it, honor it. Be faithful to it. Verse 33, keep your word. Don't just say truth is important. Be truth. Your yes needs to be yes and your no needs to be no. And you need to do what you say you're going to do. That is Christian doctrine. 
Don't just say it's important. Act that way. Verse 33. Verse 41. Go the second mile. It's not always easy to go one, but he says go two. If someone asks for your coat, uh, ask for you know, your tunic, give them your coat. If someone says go with me one mile, go with them two. Like that's Christian doctrine lived out. People who put themselves out for other people. Verse 44. Be good to people who are bad to you. The world lives, I'll be nice to you if you're nice to me. I'll scratch your back if you, I scratch mine, if you scratch mine. But God says, no, no, no. You're going to be good to people who are bad to you. Verse 6, uh, uh, chapter 6, verse 1. Um, Give in such a way that God is, honored, God is honored, not just men. Don't give to be seen. Give because you love God is what he's saying. Chapter 6, verse 6, pray. Real Christians actually pray. 619, real Christians actually give. 634, real Christians trust. They don't worry and fret. Chapter 7, verse 1, don't be judgmental. God's people, let God judge. They don't feel a need to. So you follow me on all this? That's what Sergius Paulus saw. In a way, he was watching people live out Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. Granted, microcosm, very small window. Paul spoke truth, and it was backed up with power. It was backed up with authenticity. The simple application for us tonight is this. Let's try to live with a little more authenticity in our lives. Let's try to live as, as authentically as we can in our homes. Like we don't have Sergius Paulus there, but we have children there. And they don't need perfect parents, but they sure do need to see authentic ones. Kids that are trying. Let's try to be more authentic and live with greater power in our community. At work. In other words, Christianity should be functional and operational there. At school. In the organizations we're a part of. Let's try to demonstrate God's grace and power by pouring it out in a sacrificial way outside the walls of Eastland Baptist Church. I, I, people are probably not impressed by the fact that you're here tonight. But if you leave here and are a blessing to them, they might. They might. People might give us a little more credibility, um, viability, if we were to work a little bit more on our visibility. And by that, I don't mean just to be seen, but I mean because that's who we are. Because we are salt and we are light. I, I, I think it's really important here. He saw, he marveled at the doctrine, the, what he heard and what he saw. And I think that truth is uh, no less true today, is that we will do a better job of convincing a watching world when we actually act like Jesus. So, Lord, help us with that. Let me ask you to stand tonight, if you would.